Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and primarily narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. This week we have a pair of stories by contemporaries who are two very different authors, but with very similar stories. One author is from the South, Georgia in particular. He was a schoolmaster turned author and a confederate and kept the old middle Georgia bourgeois alive in his stories. The other, or t'other, as they'll both say, is from England, and his stories are primarily about the poor and working class. The fun thing about this pairing is that if you removed any regional context, place names and such, you wouldn't be able to tell who wrote which. They're both in a similar conversational style, and they both have the dialect baked in. A lot of authors of this time wrote the dialect into the dialogue instead of just referring to it in the narrative. This influenced some unfortunate practices later on, but one thing I noticed is that the written dialect in both stories look very much the same, despite being two very different dialects spoken aloud. Despite the regional difference, I decided to narrate both stories with the same character, if you will, telling the stories to highlight the similarities in style. This first story is by Richard Malcolm Johnston. While I was reading this, I thought it might have taken place in New England. There were no place names or other hints at a location, and it wasn't until I looked up the author that I figured it out. While he does reference owning slaves, which I took out as unnecessary, that doesn't necessarily mean it's set in the South as slavery was still legal and tragically prevalent, even in the North. As it happens, the written dialect is very similar to the written dialect in The Picture in the House, which was set in New England and which was supposed to be an antiquated and long-dead Yankee dialect, according to that story. I placed this one first because whenever I read a folksy sort of conversational style, I always revert to Southern for some reason. I tried to keep the accent neutral while retaining the syncopation and twang that accompanies the various country dialects of the U.S. The Hotel Experience of Mr. Pink Fluker by Richard Malcolm Johnston Mr. Peterson Fluker, generally called Pink, for his fondness for as stylish dressing as he could afford, was one of that sort of men who habitually seem busy and efficient when they are not. He had the bustling activity often noticeable in men of his size, and in one way and another had made up, as he believed, for being so much smaller than most of his adult acquaintance of the male sex. Prominent among his achievements on that line was getting married to a woman who, among other excellent gifts, had that of being twice as big as her husband. Fool who, on the day after his marriage, he had asked, with a look at those who had often said that he was too little to have a wife. They had a little property to begin with, a couple of hundreds of acres, yet the accretions of worldly estate had been inconsiderable till now, when their oldest child, Maran, was some fifteen years old. These accretions had been saved and taken care of by Mrs. Fluker, who was as staid and silent as he was mobile and voluble. 
Mr. Fluker often said that it puzzled him how it was that he made smaller crops than most of his neighbors, when, if not always convincing, he could generally put every one of them to silence in discussions upon agricultural topics. This puzzle had led him to not unfrequent ruminations in his mind as to whether or not his vocation might lie in something higher than the mere tilling of the ground. These ruminations had lately taken a definite direction, and it was after several conversations which he had held with his friend Matt Pike. Mr. Matt Pike was a bachelor of some thirty summers, a four-time clerk consecutively in each of the two stores of the village, but latterly a trader on a limited scale in horses, wagons, cows, and similar objects of commerce, and at all times a politician. His hopes of holding office had been continually disappointed until Mr. John Sanks became sheriff and rewarded with a deputyship some important special service rendered by him in the late very close canvas. Now was a chance to rise, Mr. Pike thought. All he wanted, he had often said, was a start. Politics, I would remark, however, had been regarded by Mr. Pike as a means rather than an end. It is doubtful if he hoped to become governor of the state, at least before an advanced period in his career. His main object now was to get money, and he believed that official position would promote him in the line of his ambition faster than was possible to any private station by leading him into more extensive acquaintance with mankind, their needs, their desires, and their caprices. A deputy sheriff, provided that lawyers were not too indulgent in allowing acknowledgment of service of court processes, in postponing levies and sales, and in settlement of litigated cases, might pick up $300, a good sum for those times, a fact which Mr. Pike had known and pondered long. It happened, just about then, that the arrears of rent for the village hotel had so accumulated on Mr. Spouter, the last occupant, that the owner, an indulgent man, finally had said what he had been expected for years and years to say, that he could not wait on Mr. Spouter forever and eternally. It was at this very nick, so to speak, that Mr. Pike made to Mr. Fluker the suggestion to quit a business so far beneath his powers, sell out or rent out or tenant out or do something else with his farm, march into town, plant himself upon the ruins of Jacob Spouter, and begin his upward soar. Now Mr. Fluker had many and many a time acknowledged that he had ambition, so one night he said to his wife, You see how it is here, Nervy. Farming somehow don't suit my talents. I need to be flung more among people to fetch out what's in me. Then thar's Marianne, which is getting to be nigh on up to a growed-up woman and the child need the society which you bleached to acknowledge is scarce about here, six mile from town. Your brer Sam can stay here and raise butter, chickens, eggs, pigs, and, and, and so forth. Matt Pike say he just know there's money in it, and special with a housekeeper careful and economical like you. It is always curious the extent of influence that some men have upon wives who are their superiors. Mrs. Fluker, in spite of accidents, had ever set upon her husband a value that was not recognized outside of his family. In this respect, there seems a surprising compensation in human life. But this remark I make only in passing. Mrs. Fluker, admitting in her heart that farming was not her husband's forte, hoped, like a true wife, that it might be found in the new field to which he aspired. Besides, she did not forget that her brother Sam had said to her several times privately that if his brer pink wouldn't have so many notions and would let him alone in his management, they would all do better. 
She reflected for a day or two, then said, Maybe it's best, Mr. Fluker. I'm willing to try it for a year, anyhow. We can't lose much by that. As for Matt Pike, I hain't the confidence in him you has. Still, he being a boarder and deputy sheriff, he might accidentally do us some good. I'll try it for a year, providing you'll fetch me the money as it's paid in, for you know I know how to manage that better than you do, and you know I'll try to manage it and all the rest of the business for the best. To this provision, Mr. Fluker gave consent, qualified by the claim that he was to retain a small margin for indispensable personal exigencies. For he contended, perhaps with justice, that no man in the responsible position he was about to take ought to be expected to go about, or sit about, or even lounge about, without even a continental red in his pocket. The new house, I say new because tongue could not tell the amount of scouring, scalding, and whitewashing that that excellent housekeeper had done before a single stick of her furniture went into it, the new house, I repeat, opened with six eating boarders at $10 a month apiece, and two eating and sleeping at 11 besides Mr. Pike, who made a special contract. Transient custom was hoped to hold its own, and that of the country people under the deputy's patronage and influence to be considerably enlarged. In words and other encouragement, Mr. Pike was pronounced. He could commend honestly, and he did so cordially. The thing to do, Pink, is to have your prices regular and make people pay up regular. Ten dollars for eatin', just so. Eleven for eatin' and sleepin'. Half a dollar for dinner, just so. Quarter apiece for breakfast, supper, and bed is what I call reasonable board. As for me, I scarcely know how to regulate, because, you know, I'm an officer now. And in course I natural has to be away sometimes, and on expenses at t'other places, and it seemed like some allowance ought by good rights to be made for that. Don't you think so? Why, matter of course, Matt. What you think? I ain't so powerful good at figures. Nervy is. Supposing you speak to her about it. Oh, that's perfect unuseless, Pink. I'm an officer of the law, Pink. And the law consider women, well, I may say the law, she deal with men, not women, and she expect her officers to understand figures. And if I hadn't understood figures, Mr. Sanks wouldn't or daresn't appoint me his deputy. Me and you can fix them turns. Now see here. Regular board, a eatin' board, I mean, is ten dollars, and sleepin' and singual meals is according to the figures you've sought for. Ain't that so? Just so. Now, Pink, you and me'll keep a runnin' account. You were chargin' for regular board, and I allowin' to myself credits for my absentees, according to transient customers and singual mealers and sleepers. Is that fair, or is it not fair? Mr. Fluker turned his head, and after making, or thinking he had made a calculation, answered, That's, uh, that seemed fair, Matt. Certainly tis, Pink. I knowed you'd say so, and you know I'd never wish to be nothing but fair with people I like, like I do you and your wife. Let that be the understanding, then, betwixt us. And, Pink, let the understanding be just betwixt us, for I've saw enough of this world to find out that a man never makes nothing by making a blowing horn of his business. You make t'others pay up spuntual, monthly. You and me can settle whensomever it's convenient, say, three months from today. In course I shall talk up for the house whensomever and wheresomever I go or stay. You know that. And as for my bed, said Mr. Pike finally, whensomever I ain't here by bedtime, you're welcome to put any transient person in it. And also and likewise, when transient custom is pressing and you cramped for bedding, I'm willing to give it up for the time being, 
and rather than you should be cramped too bad, I'll take my chances somewheres else, even if I has to take a pallet at the head of the star steps. Nervy, said Mr. Fluker to his wife afterwards. Matt Pike's a sensibler and a friendlier and accommodating her feller in that thought. Then, without giving details of the contract, he mentioned merely the willingness of their boarder to reside his bed on occasions of pressing emergency. He's talked mighty fine to me and Marianne, answered Mrs. Fluker. We'll see how he holds out. One thing I do not like of his doing, and that's the talking about Sim Marchman to Marianne and making game of his country ways, as he call him. Such as that ain't right. It may be as well to explain just here that Simeon Marchman, the person just named by Mrs. Fluker, a stout, industrious young farmer residing with his parents in the country nearby where the Flukers had dwelt before removing to town, had been eyeing Marianne for a year or two, and waiting upon her fast-ripening womanhood with intentions that he believed to be hidden in his own breast, though he had taken less pains to conceal them from Marianne than from the rest of his acquaintance. Not that he had ever told her of them in so many words, but, oh, I need not stop here in the midst of this narration to explain how such intentions become known, or at least strongly suspected by girls, even those less bright than Marianne Fluker. Simeon had not cordially endorsed the movement into town, though, of course, knowing it was none of his business, he had never so much as hinted opposition. I would not be surprised, also, if he reflected that there might be some selfishness in his hostility or at least that it was heightened by apprehensions personal to himself. Considering the want of experience in the new tenants, matters went on remarkably well. Mrs. Fluker, accustomed to rise from her couch long before the lark, managed to the satisfaction of all, regular boarders, single meal-takers, and transient people. Marianne went to the village school, her mother dressing her, though with prudent economy, as neatly and almost as tastefully as any of her schoolmates. While as to study, deportment, and general progress, there was not a girl in the whole school to beat her. I don't care who she was. 2. During a not inconsiderable period, Mr. Fluker indulged the honorable conviction that at last he had found the vein in which his best talents lay and he was happy in foresight of the prosperity and felicity which that discovery promised to himself and his family. His native activity found many more objects for its exertion than before. He rode out to the farm, not often, but sometimes, as a matter of duty, and was forced to acknowledge that Sam was managing better than could have been expected in the absence of his own continuous guidance. In town, he walked about the hotel, entertained the guests, carved at the meals, hovered about the stores, the doctor's offices, the wagon and blacksmith's shops, discussed mercantile, medical, mechanical questions with specialists in all these departments, throwing into them all more and more of politics as the intimacy between him and his patron and chief boarder increased. Now as to that patron and chief boarder. The need of extending his acquaintance seemed to press upon Mr. Pike with ever-increasing weight. He was here and there, all over the county, at the county seat, at the county villages, at justices' courts, at executors' and administrators' sales, at quarterly and protracted religious meetings, at barbecues of every dimension, on hunting excursions and fishing frolics, at social parties in all neighborhoods. 
It got to be said of Mr. Pike that a freer acceptor of hospitable invitations or a better appreciator of hospitable intentions was not and needed not to be found possibly in the whole state. Nor was this admirable deportment confined to the county in which he held so high official position. He attended, among other occasions less public, the spring sessions of the Supreme and County Courts in the four adjoining counties, the guest of acquaintance old and new over there. When starting upon such travels, he would sometimes breakfast with his traveling companion in the village, and, if somewhat belated in the return, sup with him also. Yet, when at Fluker's, no man could have been a more cheerful and otherwise satisfactory boarder than Mr. Matt Pike. He praised every dish set before him, bragged to their very faces of his host and hostess, and in spite of his absences, was the oftenest to sit and chat with Maran when her mother would let her go into the parlor. Here and everywhere about the house, in the dining room, in the passage, at the foot of the stairs, he would joke with Maran about her country beau, as he styled poor Sim Marchman, and he would talk as though he was rather ashamed of Sim, and wanted Maran to string her bow for higher game. Brer Sam did manage well, not only the fields, but the yard. Every Saturday of the world he sent in something or other to his sister. I don't know whether I ought to tell it or not, but for the sake of what is due to pure veracity I will. On as many as three different occasions, Sim Marchman, as if he had lost all self-respect or had not a particle of tact, brought in himself a bucket of butter and a coop of spring chickens as a free gift to Mrs. Fluger. I do think, on my soul, that Mr. Matt Pike was much amused by such degradation. However, he must say that they were all first-rate. As for Marianne, she was very sorry for Sim and wished he had not brought these good things at all. Nobody knew how it came about, but when the Flukers had been in town somewhere between two and three months, Sim Marchman, who, to use his own words, had never bothered her a great deal with his visits, began to suspect that what few he made were received by Marianne lately with less cordiality than before. And so one day, knowing no better, in his awkward, straightforward country manners, he wanted to know the reason why. Then Marianne grew distant and asked Sim the following question. You know where Mr. Pike's gone, Mr. Marchman? Now the fact was, and she knew it, that Marianne Fluker had never before, not since she was born, addressed that boy as Mr. The visitor's face reddened and reddened. No, he faltered in answer. No, no, ma'am, I, I should say. I, I don't know where Mr. Pike's gone. Then he looked around for his hat, discovered it in time, took it into his hands, turned it around two or three times, then, bidding goodbye without shaking hands, took himself off. Mrs. Fluker liked all the Marchmans, and she was troubled somewhat when she heard of the quickness and manner of Sim's departure, for he had been fully expected by her to stay to dinner. Say he didn't even shake hands, Marianne? What for? What did you do to him? Not one blessed thing, Ma. Only he wanted to know why I wasn't gladder to see him. Then Marianne looked indignant. Say them words, Marianne? No, but he hinted them. What did you say then? I just asked, a meaning nothing in the wide world, Ma, I asked him if he knew where Mr. Pike had gone. And that were answer enough to hurt his feelings. What you want to know where Matt Pike's gone for, Marianne? I didn't care about knowing, Ma, but I didn't like the way Sim talked. Look here, Marianne. Look straight at me. 
You'll be mighty fur off your feet if you let Matt Pike put things in your head that ain't no business of being there. And special if you find yourself a-wanting to know where he's a-perambulating in his everlasting meanderings. Not a cent has he paid for his board, and which your pa say he have a-understanding with him about allowing for his absentees, which is all right enough, but which it's now going on to three months. And what is coming to us I need and I want. He ought, your pa ought, to let me bargain with Matt Pike, because he know he don't understand figures like Matt Pike. He don't know exactly what the bargain were, for I've asked him, and he always begins with a multiplying of words and never answers me. On his next return from his travels, Mr. Pike noticed a coldness in Mrs. Fluker's manner, and this enhanced his praise of the house. The last week of the third month came. Mr. Pike was often noticed, before and after meals, standing at the desk in the hotel office, called in those times the bar room, engaged in making calculations. The day before the contract expired, Mrs. Fluker, who had not indulged herself with a single holiday since they had been in town, left Maran in charge of the house, and rode forth, spending part of the day with Mrs. Marchman, Sim's mother. All were glad to see her, of course, and she returned smartly, freshened by the visit. That night she had a talk with Mare Ann, and oh, how Mare Ann did cry. The very last day came. Like insurance policies, the contract was to expire at a certain hour. Sim Marchman came just before dinner, to which he was sent for by Mrs. Fluker, who had seen him as he rode into town. Hello, Sim, said Mr. Pike as he took his seat opposite him. You here? What's the news in the country? How's your health? How's crops? Just moderate, Mr. Pike. Got a little business with you after dinner, if you can spare time. All right. Got a little manner with Pink here first. Twon't take long. See you after a meejin, Sim. Never had the deputy been more gracious and witty. He talked and talked, out-talking even Mr. Fluker. He was the only man in town who could do that. He winked at Marianne as he put questions to Sim, some of the words employed in which Sim had never heard before. Yet Sim held up as well as he could, and after dinner followed Marianne with some little dignity into the parlor. They had not been there more than ten minutes, when Mrs. Fluker was heard to walk rapidly along the passage leading from the dining room, to enter her own chamber for only a moment, then to come out and rush to the parlor door with the gig-whip in her hand. Such uncommon conduct in a woman like Mrs. Pink Fluker, of course, needs explanation. When all the other boarders had left the house, the deputy and Mr. Fluker, having repaired to the barroom, the former said, Now, Pink, for our settlement. As you say, your wife think we better have one. I'd have been a-willing to let accounts keep on a-running, knowing what a straightforward sort of man you was. Your count, if I ain't mistaken, is just thirty-three dollars, even money. Is that so, or is it not? That's it, to a dollar, Matt. Three times eleven make thirty-three, don't it? It do, Pink, or eleven times three, just what you please. Now here's my count, on which you'll see, Pink, that not nary cent have I charged for influence. I has influenced a considerable custom to this house, as you know, Borden and Transian, but I done that out of my respects of you and Mrs. Fluker, and your keeping of a fair, I'll say, as I've said frequent, a very fair house. I let them influences go to friendship, if you'll take it so. Will you, Pink Fluker? Certainly, Matt, and I'm a thousand times obliged to you, and say no more, Pink, on that point of view. If I like a man, I know how to treat him. 
Now, as to the pints of absentees, my business as deputy sheriff has took me away from this inconsiderable town frequent, ain't it? It have, Matt, or something else, more than I were expecting, and just so. But a public officer paint, when Judy called on him to go, he got to go. In fact, he got to goeth, as the scriptures say. Ain't that so? I suppose so, Matt, by good rights. A, a official speaking. Mr. Fluker felt that he was becoming a little confused. Just so. Now, Pink, I were to have credits for my absentees according to transient and single-meal boarders and sleepers. Ain't that so? I, I, uh, something of that sort, Matt, he answered vaguely. Just so. Now, look here, drawing from his pocket a paper. Item one. Twenty-eight dinners at half a dollar makes fourteen dollars, don't it? Just so. Twenty-five breakfasts at a quarter makes six and a quarter, which makes dinners and breakfasts twenty and a quarter. Follow me up as I go up, Pink. Twenty-five suppers at a quarter makes six and a quarter, and which them added to the twenty and a quarter makes them twenty-six and a half. Follow, Pink, and if you catch me in any mistakes in the addin', point it out. Twenty-two and a half beds, and I say half, Pink, because you remember one night when them Augusty lawyers got here about midnight on their way to court, rather than have you too bad cramped, I riz to make way for two of them. Yet as I had one good nap, I didn't think I ought to put that down but for half. Then makes five dollars half and seven pence, and which carried on to the t'other twenty-six and a half, fetches the whole caboodle to just thirty-two dollars and seven pence but I made up my mind I'd fling out that seven pence and just call it a dollar even money, and which here's the solid silver. In spite of the rapidity with which this enumeration of countercharges was made, Mr. Fluker commenced perspiring at the first item, and when the balance was announced, his face was covered with huge drops. It was at this juncture that Mrs. Fluker, who well knowing her husband's unfamiliarity with complicated accounts, had felt her duty to be listening near the barroom door, left and quickly afterwards appeared before Marianne and Sim as I have represented. You think Matt Pike ain't trying to settle with your pa with a dollar? I'm going to make him keep his dollar, and I'm going to give him something to go along with it. The good Lord have mercy upon us, exclaimed Marianne springing up and catching hold of her mother's skirts as she began her advance towards the barroom. Oh, Ma, for the Lord's sake! Sim, 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 if you care anything for me in this wide world, don't let Ma go into that room. Mrs. Fluker, said Sim, rising instantly, wait just two minutes till I see Mr. Pike on some pressing business. I won't keep you over two minutes awaiting. He took her, set her down in a chair, trembling, looked at her a moment as she began to weep, then, going out and closing the door, strode rapidly to the barroom. Let me help you settle your board bill, Mr. Pike, by paying you a little one I owe you. Doubling his fist, he struck out with a blow that felled the deputy to the floor. Then, catching him by his heels, he dragged him out of the house into the street. Lifting his foot above his face, he said, You stir till I tell you, and I'll stomp your nose down even with the balance of your mean face. Tain't exactly my business how you cheated, Mr. Fluker, though upon my soul I never knowed a trifliner, low-downer trick. But I owed you myself, for you're talking about and you're lying about me, and now I've paid you, and if you only knowed it, I've saved you from a gig-whipping. Now you may get up. Here's his dollar, Sim, said Mr. Fluker, throwing it out of the window. Nervy say make him take it. The vanquished, not daring to refuse, pocketed the coin and slunk away amid the jeers of a score of villagers who had been drawn to the scene. 
In all human probability, the late omission of the shaking of Sims and Marianne's hands was compensated at their parting that afternoon. I am more confident on this point because at the end of the year those hands were joined inseparably by the preacher. But this was when they had all gone back to their old home. For if Mr. Fluker did not become fully convinced that his mathematical education was not advanced quite enough for all the exigencies of hotel keeping, his wife declared that she had had enough of it and that she and Marianne were going home. Mr. Fluker may be said, therefore, to have followed rather than led his family on the return. As for the deputy, finding that if he did not leave it voluntarily, he would be drummed out of the village, he departed. Whither, I do not remember if anybody ever knew. Now let's compare this to our next story. I actually recorded this one first and fell right into that folksy southern speech pattern, despite this being written by an Englishman and not just any Englishman, I am quite pleased to include one of my absolute favorite authors, Charles Dickens. Known for his verbose writing style, you either love him or you hate him, although perhaps not as vehemently as James Joyce, and I'm pretty sure everyone listening has had some experience with Mr. Dickens. The man was paid by the word, so that should explain all you need to know about his writing style. I found it very interesting that despite being a very different story, it shares a lot of its themes with Mr. Fluker's tale. A hotel, some deceit, and some romance. And again, with a very similar narrative style. It made a really fun contrast, and this has been one of my favorite issues to produce because of it. Now, you've already heard my English accent, so I'll let you be the judge of how good it is, but I didn't even want to try to maintain it through a whole 30-minute story. As I said at the top of the hour, I decided to narrate both pieces in the same character. So while I think my creative choice works, and it's really strictly for the purpose of highlighting the language of both works, I'll again let you be the judge, or leave it to you to decide, as our narrator will later say. The Boots at the Holly Tree Inn By Charles Dickens Where had he been in his time? He repeated when I asked him the question. Lord, he had been everywhere. And what had he been? Bless you, he had been everything you could mention almost. Seen a good deal? Why, of course he had. I should say so. He could assure me if I only knew about a twentieth part of what had come in his way. Why, it would be easier for him, he expected, to tell what he hadn't seen than what he had. Ah, uh, a deal it would. What was the curiousest thing he had seen? Well, he didn't know. He couldn't momently name what was the curiousest thing he had seen, unless it was a unicorn, and he had seen him once at a fair. But supposing a young gentleman, not eight-year-old, was to run away with a fine young woman of seven, might I think that a queer start? Certainly. And that was a start as he himself had had his blessed eyes on, and he had cleaned the shoes they run away in, and they was so little he couldn't get his hand into them. 
Master Harry Walmers father, you see, he lived at the Elmses, down away by Shooter's Hill there, six or seven miles from London. He was a gentleman of spirit and good-looking and held his head up when he walked and had what you call fire about him. He wrote poetry and he rode and he ran and he cricketed and he danced and he acted and he'd done it all equally beautiful. He was uncommon proud of Master Harry, as was his only child, but he didn't spoil him neither. He was a gentleman that had a will of his own and a eye of his own, and that would be minded. Consequently, though he made quite a companion of the fine bright boy, and was delighted to see him so fond of reading his fairy books, and was never tired of hearing him say my name is Norval, or hearing him sing his songs about young May Moons as beaming love, and when he as adores thee has left but the name and that, still he kept command over the child. And the child was a child, and it's to be wished more of him was. How did Boots happen to know all this? Why, through being undergardener. Of course he couldn't be undergardener, and he was always about in the summertime, near the windows on the lawn, a-mowing and sweeping and weeding and pruning and this and that, without getting acquainted with the ways of the family. Even supposing Master Harry hadn't come to him one morning early and said, Cops, how should you spell Nora if you was asked? And then began cutting it in print all over the fence. He couldn't say that he had taken particular notice of children before that. But really it was pretty to see them two mites a-going about the place together, deep in love, and the courage of the boy. Bless your soul, he'd have throwed off his little hat and tucked up his little sleeves and gone in at a lion, he would, if they happened to meet one, and she had been frightened of him. One day he stops, along with her, where Boots was hoeing weeds in the gravel, and says, speaking up, Cops, he says, I like you. Do you, sir? I'm proud to hear it. Yes, I do, Cobbs. Why do I like you, do you think, Cobbs? Don't know, Master Harry, I am sure. Because Nora likes you, Cobbs. Indeed, sir. That's very gratifying. Gratifying, Cobbs? It's better than millions of the brightest diamonds to be liked by Nora. Certainly, sir. Would you like another situation, Cobbs? Well, sir, I shouldn't object if it was a good one. Then, Cobbs, says he, you shall be our head gardener when we are married. And he tucks her in her little sky-blue mantle under his arm and walks away. Boots could assure me that it was better than a picture, and equal to a play to see them babies with their long, bright, curling hair, their sparkling eyes, and their beautiful light tread a-rambling about the garden deep in love. Boots was of opinion that the birds believed they was birds, and kept up with them, singing to please them. Sometimes they would creep under the tulip tree and would sit there with their arms round one another's necks and their soft cheeks touching, a reading about the prince and the dragon and the good and bad enchanters and the king's fair daughter. Sometimes he would hear them planning about a house in a forest, keeping bees and a cow, and living entirely on milk and honey. Once he came upon them by the pond and heard Master Harry say, Adorable Nora, kiss me and say you love me to distraction, or I'll jump in head foremost and Boots made no question he would have done it if she hadn't complied. On the whole, Boots said it had a tendency to make him feel he was in love himself, only he didn't exactly know who with. Cobbs, said Master Harry one evening, when Cobbs was watering the flowers, I am going on a visit this present midsummer to my grandmama's at York. Are you indeed, sir? I hope you'll have a pleasant time. I'm going into Yorkshire myself when I leave here. Are you going to your grandmama's, Cobbs? No, sir, I haven't got such a thing. Not as a grandmama, Cobbs? 
No, sir. The boy looked on at the watering of the flowers for a little while and then said, I shall be very glad indeed to go, Cobbs. Nora's going. You'll be all right then, sir, says Cobbs, with your beautiful sweetheart by your side. Cobbs, returned the boy, flushing. I never let anybody joke about it when I can prevent them. It wasn't a joke, sir, says Cobbs, with humility. Wasn't so meant. I am glad of that, Cobbs, because I like you, you know, and you're going to live with us. Cobbs! Sir, what do you think my grandmama gives me when I go down there? I couldn't so much as make a guess, sir. A Bank of England five-pound note, Cobbs. Woo, says Cobbs. That's a spanking sum of money, Master Harry. A person could do a great deal with such a sum of money as that, couldn't a person, Cobbs? I believe you, sir. Cobbs, said the boy, I'll tell you a secret. At Nora's house, they have been joking her about me and pretending to laugh at her being engaged, pretending to make game of it, Cobbs. Such, sir, says Cobbs, is the depravity of human nature. The boy, looking exactly like his father, stood for a few minutes with his glowing face toward the sunset and then departed with, Good night, Cobbs. I'm going in. If I was to ask Boots how it happened that he was a-going to leave that place just at that present time, well, he couldn't rightly answer me. He did suppose he might have stayed there till now if he had been anyways inclined, but you see, he was younger then, and he wanted change. That's what he wanted, change. Mr. Walmers, he said to him when he gave him notice of his intentions to leave, Cobbs, he says, have you anything to complain of? I make the inquiry, because if I find that any of my people really has anything to complain of, I wish to make it right if I can. No, sir, says Cobbs. But thanking you, sir, I find myself as well situated here as I could hope to be anywheres. The truth is, sir, that I'm a-going to seek my fortune. Oh, indeed, Cobbs, he says. I hope you may find it. And Boots could assure me, which he did, touching his hair with his boot jack as a salute in the way of his present calling, that he hadn't found it yet. Well, sir, Boots left the Elmses when his time was up, and Master Harry, he went down to the old ladies at York, which old lady would have given that child the teeth out of her head if she had had any, she was so wrapped up in him. What does that infant do? For infant you may call him and be within the mark, but cut away from that old lady's with his Nora on an expedition to go to Gretna Green and be married. Sir, Boots was at this identical holly tree inn, having left it several times to better himself, but always come back through one thing or another, when one summer afternoon the coach drives up and out of the coach gets them two children. The guard says to our governor, I don't quite make out these little passengers, but the young gentleman's words was that they was to be brought here. The young gentleman gets out, hands his lady out, gives the guard something for himself, says to our governor, We're to stop here tonight, please. Sitting room and two bedrooms will be required. Chops and cherry pudding for two. And tucks her in her little sky-blue mantle under his arm and walks into the house much bolder than brass. Boots leaves me to judge what the amazement of that establishment was when these two tiny creatures all alone by themselves was marched into the angel, much more so when he, who had seen them without their seeing him, gave the governor his views upon the expedition they was upon. Cobbs, says the governor, if this is so, I must set off myself to York and quiet their friends' minds, in which case you must keep your eye upon them and humor them till I come back. But before I take these measures, Cobbs, I should wish you to find from themselves whether your opinions is correct. Sir, to you, says Cobbs, that shall be done directly.
So Boots goes upstairs to the angel, and there he finds Master Harry on an enormous sofa, immense at any time, but looking like the great bed of wear compared with him, a-drying the eyes of Miss Nora with his pocket handkerchief. Their little legs was entirely off the ground, of course, and it really is not possible for Boots to express to me how small them children looked. It's Cobbs! It's Cobbs! cries Master Harry, and comes running to him on t'other side and catching hold of his t'other hand, and they both jump for joy. I see you were getting out, sir, says Cobbs. I thought it was you. I thought I couldn't be mistaken in your height and figure. What's the object of your journey, sir? Matrimonial. We're going to be married, Cobbs, at Gretna Green, returned the boy. We have run away on purpose. Nora has been in rather low spirits, Cobbs, but she'll be happy now we have found you to be our friend. Thank you, sir, and thank you, miss, says Cobbs, for your good opinion. Did you bring any luggage with you, sir? If I will believe Boots when he gives me his word and honor upon it, the lady had got a parasol, a smelling bottle, a round and a half of cold buttered toast, eight peppermint drops, and a hairbrush, seemingly a doll's. The gentleman had got about half a dozen yards of string, a knife, three or four sheets of writing paper, folded up surprising small, a orange, and a chaining mug with his name upon it. What may be the exact nature of your plans, sir? says Cobbs. To go on, replied the boy, which the courage of that boy was something wonderful, in the morning, and be married tomorrow. Just so, sir, says Cobbs. Would it meet your views, sir, if I was to accompany you? When Cobbs said this, they both jumped for joy again and cried out, Oh, yes, yes, Cobbs, yes. Well, sir, says Cobbs, if you will excuse me, having the freedom to give an opinion, what I should recommend would be this. I'm acquainted with a pony, sir, which, put in a phaeton that I could borrow, would take you and Mrs. Harry Walmers, Jr., myself driving, if you approved, to the end of your journey in a very short space of time. I am not altogether sure, sir, that this pony will be at liberty tomorrow, but even if you had to wait over tomorrow for him, it might be worth your while. As to the small account here, sir, in case you was to find yourself running at all short, that don't signify, because I am a part proprietor of this inn, and it could stand over. Boots assures me that when they clapped their hands and jumped for joy again, and called him good cobs and dear cobs, and bent across him to kiss one another in the delight of their confiding hearts, he felt himself the meanest rascal for deceiving him that ever was born. Is there anything you want just at present, sir? says Cobbs, mortally ashamed of himself. We should like some cakes after dinner, answered Master Harry, folding his arms, putting out one leg and looking straight at him. And two apples and jam. With dinner we should like to have toast and water. But Nora has always been accustomed to half a glass of currant wine at dessert, and so have I. It shall be ordered at the bar, sir says Cobbs, and away he went. Boots has the feeling, as fresh upon him this moment of speaking, as he had then, that he would far rather have had it out in half a dozen rounds with the governor than have combined with him, and that he wished with all his heart there was any impossible place where two babies could make an impossible marriage and live impossibly happy ever afterward. However, as it couldn't be, he went into the governor's plans, and the governor set off for York in half an hour. The way in which the women of that house, without exception, every one of them, married and single, took to that boy when they heard the story, Boots considers surprising. It was as much as he could do to keep him from dashing into the room and kissing him. They climbed up all sorts of places, at the risk of their lives, to look at him through a pane of glass. They was seven deep at the keyhole. 
They was out of their minds about him and his bold spirit. In the evening, Boots went into the room to see how the runaway couple was getting on. The gentleman was on the window seat, supporting the lady in his arms. She had tears upon her face and was lying very tired and half asleep with her head upon his shoulder. Mrs. Harry Walmer's junior fatigued, sir, says Cobbs. Yes, she is tired, Cobbs, but she is not used to be away from home, and she has been in low spirits again. Cobbs, do you think you could bring a biffin, please? I ask your pardon, sir, says Cobbs. What was it you... I think a Norfolk biffin would rouse her, Cobbs. She is very fond of them. Boots withdrew in search of the required restorative, and when he brought it in, the gentleman handed it to the lady and fed her with a spoon and took a little himself, the lady being heavy with sleep and rather cross. What should you think, sir, says Cobbs, of a chamber candlestick? The gentleman approved. The chambermaid went first, up the great staircase, the lady in her sky-blue mantle followed, gallantly escorted by the gentleman. The gentleman embraced her at her door and retired to his own apartment, where Boots softly locked him in. Boots couldn't but feel with increased acuteness what a base deceiver he was. When they consulted him at breakfast, they had ordered sweet milk and water and toast and currant jelly overnight about the pony. It really was as much as he could do, he don't mind confessing to me, to look them two young things in the face and to think what a wicked old father of lies he had grown up to be. Howsomever, he went on a-lying like a Trojan about the pony. He told them that it did so unfortunately happen that the pony was half-clipped, you see, and that he couldn't be taken out in that state for fear it should strike to his inside, but that he'd be finished clipping in the course of the day and that tomorrow morning at eight o'clock the Phaeton would be ready. Boots's view of the whole case, looking back on it in my room, is that Mrs. Harry Walmers Jr. was beginning to give in. She hadn't had her hair curled when she went to bed, and she didn't seem quite up to brushing it herself, and its getting in her eyes put her out. But nothing put out Master Harry. He sat behind his breakfast cup a-tearing away at the jelly, as if he had been his own father. After breakfast, Boots is inclined to consider they drawed soldiers. At least he knows that many such was found in the fireplace, all on horseback. In the course of the morning, Master Harry rang the bell. It was surprising how that there boy did carry on, and said in a sprightly way, Cobbs, is there any good walks in this neighborhood? Yes, sir, says Cobbs. There's Love Lane. Get out with you, Cobbs. That was that there boy's expression. You're joking. Begging your pardon, sir, says Cobbs. There really is Love Lane and a pleasant walk it is, and proud shall I be to show it to you yourself and Mrs. Harry Walmers, Jr. Nora, dear, says Master Harry, this is curious. We really ought to see Love Lane. Put on your bonnet, my sweetest darling, and we will go there with Cobbs. Boots leaves me to judge what a beast he felt himself to be when that young pair told him, as they all three jogged along together, that they had made up their minds to give him two thousand guineas a year as head gardener, on account of his being so true a friend to him. Boots could have wished at the moment that the earth would have opened and swallowed him up, he felt so mean, with their beaming eyes a-looking at him and believing him. Well, sir, he turned the conversation as well as he could, and he took him down Love Lane to the water meadows, and there Master Harry would have drowned himself in half a moment more a getting a water lily for her, but nothing daunted that boy. Well, sir, they was tired out. All being so new and strange to him, they was tired as tired could be. And they laid down on a bank of daisies, like the children in the wood, at least ways meadows, and fell asleep. 
Boots don't know, uh, perhaps I do, uh, but never mind, it don't signify either way, why it made a man fit to make a fool of himself to see them two pretty babies a-lying there in the clear still day, not dreaming half so hard when they was asleep as they done when they was awake. But Lord, when you come to think of yourself, you know, and what a game you have been up to ever since you was in your own cradle, and what a poor sort of chap you are, and how it's always either yesterday with you or tomorrow, and never today, that's where it is. Well, sir, they woke up at last, and then one thing was getting pretty clear to Boots, namely that Mrs. Harry Walmers' junior's temper was on the move. When Master Harry took her round the waist, she said he teased her so, and when he says, Nora, my young May Moon, your Harry tease you, she tells him, yes, and I want to go home. A biled fowl and baked bread and butter pudding brought Mrs. Walmers up a little, but Boots could have wished, he must privately own to me, to have seen her more sensible of the voice of love, and less abandoning of herself to currents. However, Master Harry, he kept up, and his noble heart was as fond as ever. Mrs. Walmers turned very sleepy about dusk and began to cry. Therefore, Mrs. Walmers went off to bed as per yesterday, and Master Harry ditto repeated. About eleven or twelve at night comes back the governor in a chaise, along with Mr. Walmers and the elderly lady. Mr. Walmers looks amused and very serious, both at once, and says to our missus, We are much indebted to you, ma'am, for your kind care of our little children, which we can never sufficiently acknowledge. Pray, ma'am, where is my boy? Our missus says, Cobbs has the dear child in charge, sir. Cobbs, show forty. Then he says to Cobbs, Ah, Cobbs, I am glad to see you. I understood you was here. And Cobb says, Yes, sir, you're most obedient, sir. I may be surprised to hear Boots say it, perhaps, but Boots assures me that his heart beat like a hammer going upstairs. I beg your pardon, sir, says he, while unlocking the door. I do hope you are not angry with Master Harry, for Master Harry is a fine boy, sir, and will do you credit and honor. And Boots signifies to me that if the fine boy's father had contradicted him, in the daring state of mind in which he then was, he thinks he should have fetched him a crack and taken the consequences. But Mr. Walmers only says, No, Cobbs, no, my good fellow, thank you. And the door being opened, goes in. Boots goes in too, holding the light, and he sees Mr. Walmers go up to the bedside, bend gently down, and kiss the little sleeping face. Then he stands looking at it for a minute, looking wonderfully like it. They do say he ran away with Mrs. Walmers. And then he gently shakes the little shoulder. Harry, my dear boy, Harry. Master Harry starts up and looks at him. Looks at Cobbs, too. Such is the honor of that might that he looks at Cobbs to see whether he has brought him into trouble. I'm not angry, my child. I only want you to dress yourself and come home. Yes, Pa. Master Harry dresses himself quickly. His breast begins to swell when he is nearly finished, and it swells more and more as he stands, at last, to looking at his father, his father standing a-looking at him, the quiet image of him. Please, may I? The spirit of that little creature, and the way he kept his rising tears down. Please, dear Pa, may I kiss Nora before I go? You may, my child. So he takes Master Harry in his hand, and Boots leads the way with the candle, and they come to that other bedroom, where the elderly lady is seated by the bed, and poor little Mrs. Harry Walmers, Jr., is fast asleep. There the father lifts the child up to the pillow, 
and he lays his little face down for an instant by the little warm face of poor unconscious little Mrs. Harry Walmers Jr. and gently draws it to him. A sight so touching to the chambermaids who are peeping through the door that one of them called out, It's a shame to part em. But this chambermaid was always, as Boots informs us, a soft-hearted one. Not that there was any harm in that girl, far from it. Finally, Boots says, that's all about it. Mr. Walmers drove away in the chaise, having hold of Master Harry's hand. The elderly lady, and Mrs. Walmers Jr., that was never to be, she married a captain long afterward and died in India, went off next day. In conclusion, Boots puts it to me whether I hold with him in two opinions. Firstly, that there are not many couples on their way to be married who are half as innocent of guile as those two children. Secondly, that it would be a jolly good thing for a great many couples on their way to be married if they could only be stopped in time and brought back separately. I had a really great time of it this week, and I hope you enjoyed it. Stories like these are why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. Next week celebrates that most infamous of holidays, Valentine's Day. A day of love or manufactured by Hallmark, romance is in the air, and with it comes a dear friend and colleague. You won't want to miss her debut on the magazine. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayorzine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayorzine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.